the Talent Analytics and Future of Work podcast with Al Adamson. Hi, this is Al Adamson, founder and executive director of the Talent Strategy Institute. Thanks for joining us. I'm here today with Mickey Silverman of Jackson Lewis. Mickey, you there? I am. Mickey, I'm super, super excited that you're joining me today because you're on a topic that is top of mind for those I'm talking with here in California, given recent legislation, and also you know, around the country as uh, you can speak to this more than I can of what happened recently in Massachusetts around fair pay and uh, pay equity in general. So if you would, uh, please introduce yourself and Jackson Lewis and the work you're doing in this area. Sure. And it's great to be chatting with you today, Al. Thanks for inviting me on with you. Um, I'm Mickey Silverman, and I'm with the law firm of Jackson Lewis. We are a national employment law firm. So we help employers uh, work on any areas that touch on the workplace and the employment relationship. And that's the big picture. And we're all, you mentioned California, uh, we're all over the country. We have 57 offices, about 800 attorneys who do nothing but workplace or human resources law. And within that, I specialize. I am one of the, the data geeks, if you will, for, for my law firm. And uh, we have, as a firm, really uh, seen the emerging area of data analytics, workplace analytics, and both its, uh, its value and its potential horrors and exposure that come along with that. And I know today we're going to be chatting about one of those topics, which is near and dear to my heart, which is pay equity. And as you mentioned, this has emerged. The, I've been doing this for 21 years now, and I have never seen an area that has really materialized, in essence, all at once as a top priority issue, what should be a top priority issue for employers, and the exposure, the dangers that come along with it if employers are not focused in this area. And some of that has to do with legal obligations that have fairly quickly emerged, but it's much broader than that, and that's what makes this area so interesting. So. Let's just define our terms here. When we talk about pay equity, sometimes you'll hear it referred to as equal pay or fair pay. I like to use the term pay equity because that gets at the concept in the way that I think employers and all others should be thinking about it, which is this. Are you paying your employers, are you paying your employees in a consistent and fair manner given how you administer your pay system. Here's the good news. We are a capitalist society. For companies out there, there is no obligation that we pay people equally. Often you'll hear equal pay for equal work. Think about your environment. You don't pay people equally for the same work, right? If you have 60 uh, computer programmers, they're not all making a lockstep $85,000. Instead, things like performance and prior related experience and education, productivity, other factors legitimately affect how you pay people. And so you legitimately under the law may, and you are in fact, paying people differently for the same work. The question then becomes, where you are, as you are inevitably doing so, paying people differently, are those differences driven entirely 
by job-related legitimate factors, like tenure and time and position and performance, or are they driven by other factors such as race or gender or other legally protected categories? If the latter group, those legally protected categories, play any role in your pay of your employees, then we have real potential danger here of being found out of compliance with our laws. And by the way, I mentioned, I'll come back to, it's not just about the laws. That's a narrow, it's an important way to look at it, but I'll talk in a moment about shareholders for publicly traded companies, activist investor groups that are putting enormous pressure on publicly traded companies to get their house in order when it comes to issues of pay equity, even if we didn't have the important and challenging legal changes that I'm about to describe, if we only dealt with issues of shareholder activism, that by itself would be a game changer, but that's one piece of just a larger puzzle. So let me level set for us here for just a moment or two. Last year, women in the United States in total made 79 cents on every dollar that men made. That's what we call the pay gap, the national pay gap. Women making 79 cents in comparison to the man's dollar. When you break that down further by race, African-American women made 61 cents on the dollar in comparison to men. Hispanic, Hispanic women nationally made 55 cents on the dollar in comparison to men. This pay gap by race and gender has existed and has been persistent for the last several decades. Now, there were some fairly basic equal pay laws put into place by the federal government, also by the states. For example, California was one of the first in the nation to put an equal pay law in place. It was called the California Equal Pay Law, and it was passed in 1949. Many other states have similar laws. However, with those laws on the books, for whatever reason, we have not seen that pay gap closed as many, many comp theorists, many in academia and in government and in corporate America, many expected over the last couple of decades. And so we have seen a strong move over the last four or five years to develop more aggressive pay laws. Think of these as new tools in the toolbox. For whatever reason, the tools that existed under previous laws did not do much at all to budge this persistent pay gap. And so the states, the individual states, as well as, as, well as the federal government, have tried to become a laboratory to test out different tools that might attack this persistent pay gap. And Al, you mentioned California. Why don't we start there? Uh, California had, as I mentioned, an Equal Pay Act since 1949, very rarely used to claim pay discrimination. Well, as of January 1 of 2016, a new and far more aggressive pay law was put in place called the California Fair Pay Act. And this, for California employers, changes the rules of the game. This 
quick takeaway here is I will tell you as someone who's deep in this area, I head up for our law firm, our pay equity resource group, and I am living in the trenches right now with employers all over the country, including California, that are seeing a wave of pay equity claims, claims of discrimination, as well as increasingly, as I'm recommending, doing proactive pay equity analyses so that employers can figure out on their own whether there are pay differences, and if there are, whether they're explained by these legitimate job-related factors, or whether there may be some protected group explanations, such as race or gender, that may be driving it. This California Fair Pay Law, uh, Fair Pay Act, which went into effect, has a couple of rather controversial aspects to it. Number one, it says to plaintiffs or to California State, when you're looking at fair pay, you can compare people more broadly than has been the case under the previous law. The previous law said basically people have to be doing equal work, which really translates into the same job. So think about an employer that has 10,000 employees and they have 2,500 job titles. 10,000 employees, 2,500 job titles means they're averaging about four employees per job title. And if you're trying to uncover a trend of pay discrimination on a systemic basis across the organization, looking at what I call onesies and twosies, or an average of four people that you're comparing per title does not allow you to get at a systemic trend. There may be, in fact, be a trend there, but it will not emerge if you're looking at small groups. So one thing the California Fair Pay Act said was, we're no longer looking at equal work. We're looking at what they call substantially similar work when viewed as a composite of skill, effort, and responsibility. And if you think of that phrase, when viewed as a composite of skill, effort, and responsibility, where people are doing substantially similar work, think about the practical implications. I work quite a bit with uh, employers in Silicon Valley. So let's think about your uh, IT sector employer that has 10,000 employees. Remember, just a moment ago, they had 2,500 job titles with an average of four employees per. But of the 10,000 employees sitting in the greater Bay Area, 7,000 of them are computer engineer science programmer type of jobs. They are at higher levels. They are at lower levels. They may be in different functions. They may be working in different computer languages. They're doing different jobs, but when you're measuring them from the perspective of are those computer engineers substantially similar, not perfectly the same, but substantially similar when viewed as a general composite of their skill, effort, and responsibility, the answer is, I'm a defense guy. I help employers look at this through a defense lens. But if I were on the other side, if I were a plaintiff seeking to make a claim, there's a very sound argument. We'll see the litigation emerge now. We're starting to see it. But it, the law just passed earlier this year. But there is a sound argument 
that rolling together all of your computer science professionals and comparing those 7,000 as against each other, that would be legitimate when looking at a substantially similar composite approach to it. That's one aspect that is challenging. And I will tell you is, while I'm a lawyer, we have seven statisticians and economists who sit on our team who crunch these type of numbers, build these pay equity programs, write software and code for it. Tell you, what I've learned is big numbers are bad numbers. When you roll up those 7,000 employees and compare your 3,500 minority employees with your 3,500 white employees, you are going to get to statistical red flags much more quickly, they're going to be much larger, and then that rolls to the next piece of the controversial aspect of the California Fair Pay Act. So we've rolled up all of your employees. By the way, the law changes the previous law to say that you can compare across locations, physical establishments. So if you have your employees sitting in San Jose and another location in Palo Alto and another one in Dan downtown San Francisco, under the previous law, the plaintiff had to, someone who wanted to challenge you, had to look at those locations separately. You now, under this law, can roll up across those locations, across those who are substantially similar, and then this is what the employer must do. They must explain, quote unquote, the entire wage differential, meaning any difference between those 3,500 uh, minority and white computer science professionals, it will be incumbent on the employer to explain those differences. I will tell you for someone who works with hundreds of companies on proactive pay equity analyses and also helps them when there are challenges in court or by enforcement agencies from the government, I will tell you that this, these couple of what feel like subtle changes, just when you read the language of them, actually it is a seismic change that is very clearly thought through and designed to change the tools in the toolbox of plaintiffs and of the enforcement agencies for the government to root out pay discrimination that's driving, they believe, this persistent pay gap that we see. That's California. Uh, in addition, we are seeing now a parade of states line up behind California to pass new aggressive fair pay laws. Massachusetts, earlier in uh, early August of 2016, Massachusetts passed what I consider now an even more aggressive law. California usually wins the prize for being the most aggressive when it comes to employee protections, but Massachusetts has one up California. I won't go through all the detail of that one, but suffice to say this issue of who you group together, Massachusetts has done some very aggressive things there where they've said anyone doing quote unquote comparable work, and that can be interpreted incredibly broadly, but comparable work uh, are appropriately compared. And then similar to California, uh, the employer has to explain the entire difference that exists there. There are some other unique things about Massachusetts uh, that, uh, uh, that are worth looking into, but what I want to do here, I'll just wrap up with one more piece to talk about the legal change uh, and then see if any uh, questions that we might want to knock around. 
I've mentioned California and Massachusetts. There are right now a total of about 20 states in total that have either passed or are in the process of moving towards passage of new more aggressive payloads. I want anyone listening to this podcast who is, uh, works with or is part of a multi-state employer, meaning you have a presence in California, you have a presence in Maryland, another state that just passed significant pay legislation, New York, Ma uh, Massachusetts. In addition to me being the, the messenger to tell you that we have to focus on pay equity more proactively, think about this, the sheer logistical challenges of if I have to comply with different laws, with different standards that lay out different methods for looking at whether I've achieved pay equity or not, if that exists differently across different states, how do I go about doing so? We need to be proactive about this, but we also be, need to be nuanced and nimble enough to do things differently in the different states if you're a multi-state employer. But in addition to all these individual state obligations, I think of it as a checkerboard of differing obligations. The 800-pound gorilla for us in terms of legal compliance is coming our way very soon which has to do with what's called EEO-1 reporting. Every employer with 100 or more employees in the United States has an obligation annually to submit certain data in their EEO-1 report. They have to submit race and gender and employee totals. They have to do so by job category like managers, professionals, service workers, sales. But there never has been an obligation to provide any pay data as part of that reporting. Well, that's about to change. The federal enforcement agencies, the EEOC and the OFCCP, those are the two main equal employment enforcement agencies, they have a proposal in which is nearing finalization. Now we expect it to be finalized uh, probably by late 2016, which will require starting at the beginning of 2018 that all employers who submit EO1 reports, 100 or more employees, must give in for all of their employees W-2 earnings along with the hours actually worked by your employees, and that will be added to the race for your employees, the gender, the, the jobs that they're in. You're going to have to do this separately for each of your locations, so if you have 14 locations around the country, you'll give in 14 separate EO1 reports with W-2, with work hours, and so forth. This will allow the enforcement agencies for the first time to look on an annual basis at your pay by race and gender. Think about the fact that it's total earnings. This is not just base comp. You're going to have to give an actual overtime dollars, actual commissions earned. Uh, uh, you're going to have to give in bonuses. Anything that makes up total cash compensation you will need to provide as part of W-2 earnings, and the government will, for the first time, examine what your employees look like by race, by gender, within their individual jobs, but they're going to do more than that. They're also going to publish this data. They have said, not by individual employer, they have said within industry, let's say, let's go back to the IT sector, and within geography, which typically will mean by zip code. So think about the employers in the IT sector in Palo Alto. The government is going to aggregate that data by race and gender and W-2 earnings 
and it's going to publish it on its website. And the theory is it will allow employers to benchmark against those uh, other employers in their industry and their geography. It's a very nice idea, but if you're publicizing our pay data, think about who else will now have access to it. Uh, our competitors, the press, plaintiffs, unions, others who might seek to do us harm, Another group that will have access to it are our incumbent employees, our applicants for employment. Think about the implications of that when the veil is pulled back, the curtain is pulled back, if you will, and there will be transparency around pay, which will allow those who want to examine that data to see whether there are gaps from a race or a gender perspective it will allow those who want to potentially bring claims to us uh, against us, it will allow them to do so in a way that we've never done before. The takeaway from this, Al, is right now, the government does not know what they don't know about our pay, but they will soon. Employees, applicants, unions, plaintiff bar, None of them know right now what they don't know about employers' pay, but between these much more aggressive laws at the state level and federal disclosure of our pay information and then publicizing it, employers, employees and applicants and plaintiffs and the government, they will know what they currently don't know about our pay, and now it's incumbent on employers to understand that if right now they, the employers, don't know what they don't know about their pay, and that's many employers that I see out there, some very large employers, who have used the ostrich defense, right? They stick their head in the sand, close your eyes, cross your fingers, and hope for the best, and wait for the claims to come, and then only respond when they happen. That can't be the continued approach. The approach instead must be, if all those other groups are gonna soon know what they don't know about our pay, we need to know what we don't know about our pay. And that translates into proactive analyses. Now, the good news is from a data analytics perspective, your HRAS systems, your payroll systems, your applicant tracking systems, they become more robust and more capable almost by the day. They allow employers to conduct proactive analyses by roaming broadly and deeply within their data in a way that they really have not been able to in the past. You can do it more efficiently, you can do it more creatively, more strategically, and get to proactive results and find and fix problems that may be out there. Last thing, and I'm a lawyer, I feel compelled to say it, I wanna make sure that if there are employers out there, data anal uh, analysts out there who are saying, yeah, I need to do this proactively, we wanna be careful that we don't fall into the no good deed goes unpunished, Meaning that if you conduct these analyses and then a plaintiff or the government demands that you turn over your results later on, if you have not taken steps to ensure that there's privilege around your analyses, then you may very well have to turn over these analyses that you've prepared and have taken pains to try to keep confidential. So I'm a lawyer. Here's the sad reality for you. You gotta get a lawyer involved in helping you run these analyses. You can do them to some extent on your own, but 
make sure you have an attorney involved in uh, directing the project so that you can invoke privilege later on in the event that third parties might try to get their hands on the analyses. So that's that's in a nutshell where we are, Al, and I'm happy to knock around any questions that you might have. Well, Mickey, I mean, you have such a great coherent narrative around this topic, and uh, thank you for sharing. And the in the balance of our time, two quick questions. You've touched on HRIS systems, legal, uh, talent acquisition. So there's a lot of functions within an organization that would be affected by uh, the change that this is inspiring. Uh, so my pointed question, who are your your clients? Who are making decisions in this regard? Is it in-house counsel? Is it the CEO? Is it the CHRO? You know, who is actually you know, leading this initiative within your client group? And related to that, how can they learn more about you and Jackson Lewis and what you're doing in this area? Well, thanks, Alan. The first part of the question, I'll hit the second one that's kind of you to ask, but this, the first one is the one that I, I, I want to hit first because that's really what's most important here for uh, uh, for individuals to think about practically. So it's a really good question because some of the usual suspects, if you will, um, are our clients within the organization, but there are one or two that are conspicuously absent. Let me start with those who are our normal early touches in this process. HR. Uh, most often is the ones we see paying closest attention to this. Um, you mentioned the CEO. This is increasingly coming from the C-suite and often from the CEO directly if what's motivating that is the shareholder pressure that I mentioned. We are seeing activist shareholder groups that are buying into companies just so they can put this issue on the shareholder agenda and then very often it's coming from the CEO or the senior level C-suite operations type folks who are coming to us saying, we're getting pressure from shareholders, what do we do? Um, to a lesser extent, but increasingly so, we're seeing it's, a, uh, it's attorneys, the in-house counsel, who are coming to us. And I mentioned the usual suspects versus those who are somewhat less so. I would say to any in-house counsel who might be listening to this, or those who have the ear of your in-house counsel. The in-house counsel needs to get more involved in this issue. This is both a legal compliance issue, a business compliance issue, a business reputational harm issue. There are things bound up in this that lawyers in-house, if they're going to protect their organization, need to be thinking about. But interestingly, the group that you might think would be interested in this and reaching out to us is COMP. The, the comp department in an organization, and I don't want to offend any of those who may be listening who are either comp people or recovering comp people, they tend to view themselves as we're comp, we get our comp system, no one else understands it, so don't worry, we've got this, we'll take it from here. And right now I see a significant gap and the exposure for employers as a result where comp goes their own way on this, either they're doing analyses which are not privileged, they're doing analyses which in terms of the methodology will not stand up to scrutiny when challenged, or they're not doing analyses. None of those scenarios are good. So, I've, oh, by the way, increasingly we're seeing in large organizations people who are in data analytics roles. We are beginning to see those folks come to us 
and talk about pay equity and what they should be doing and how best to structure it from a privileged perspective or otherwise. So those are the traditional touches and those are the ones that I'd advocate the uh, you know the comp in-house data analytics folks that uh, that they integrate more so and have a coordinated approach in order to best protect the organization. Uh, and then the last part, just as you mentioned, uh, I love this stuff. I, I, this is, this, you, know, you know, it's interesting. I'm a, I'm a lawyer at a big law firm. I get to wake up every morning and say, you know what I'm about to do? I'm about to go into work and make the world a better place. It's, it's a pretty cool, gratifying thing to do. Um, and this area is exploding as it should be. If companies and data analysts are, are paying attention to this, right? So I'd welcome it if go on our website, uh, www.jacksonlewis.com. You can find me, Mickey Silverman, on there and my, my bio and my contact information. Uh, do a search for our pay equity resource group. All of these things are easy ways to get in touch with us, and we'd welcome a chance to chat with you and knock this area around, um, help you think about it the right way, and if there's an opportunity to help you more specifically, that would be wonderful, but I'm much more interested in just making sure that people are aware of this emerging area, Al, and that they're thinking about it and getting it right. Mickey, always outstanding to talk with you, and thank you for sharing your insights and ideas, and I'm sure we'll be hearing from you again in the near future. So look forward to seeing you again soon. Thanks again. Great chatting with you, Al. Take care. Yep. Thanks for listening to the Talent Analytics and Future of Work podcast with Al Adamson. For other podcasts and to learn about upcoming events, please visit talentstrategyinstitute.com.